welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. On this week's episode, we're revisiting some conversations with past guests who appeared on Star Trek The Next Generation. I grew up in the era of TNG, and it was in fact my first Trek series that I watched as it happened. When it premiered, I wasn't even in grade school yet, but it's the series that's responsible for kickstarting my love of Star Trek and is ultimately the litmus test that I hold all of the series to. There are so many standout episodes across those seven seasons, and so many great guests to speak with about them. And even the episodes that aren't so beloved still have some awesome tales behind them. So today, we're going back in time to hear some of these behind-the-scenes stories from several actors who were part of the Next Generation series who've appeared on Trek Untold this year, which includes our time with Ursula and Bryant, Spencer Garrett, Max Grudenchik, Juliana Donald, Eric Avari, Alicia Naff, Alex Datcher, and Armin Shimmerman. A quick disclaimer about this episode, these are not going to be the full interviews with today's guests, just the highlights from these past appearances, which don't necessarily reflect all of the guests we had from that particular series this year. These are short clips, and might even be shortened more than what was originally aired in the full episode, so if you like what you hear, you should definitely consider digging back into our archives to hear the full episodes and all of the stories that these wonderful guests told us. But before we jump into today's interview, I want to ask you if you're following us yet on social media. If you're not, you can check out Trek Untold on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we update there constantly. It's the best way to find out who this week's guest is going to be in advance, and also potentially ask them any questions when we offer that option. So that's Trek Untold, one word, no spaces, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold to take a look at some of the merchandise we have there, which includes t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, and all sorts of other things. We'll be releasing new designs constantly, so make sure to keep an eye there if you'd like to support this show and show off to your friends how much you like it. You can also directly support this show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold to become a Patreon. But most important of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast, and if you're listening to it on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or any other audio forms, make sure to leave a review and a rating and drop some stars if you can. And if you're watching the YouTube version, please don't forget to subscribe to Nerd News Today, the channel that you're watching this on, and give the video a thumbs up. And of course, while you're at it, feel free to comment there and let me know what you think of this week's guest. Subscribing, leaving ratings, leaving comments are all some of the most important things you can do to help this podcast continue to grow and ensure that more people find out about this show. And if you're already following us or supporting us on Patreon or have bought some merch, a big, big thank you for doing that or offering your support in whatever way that you can. Thank you for the help. There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and I'm very grateful that you've chosen to listen to this one today. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our sponsor at Triple Fiction Productions, who makes some amazing 3D printed Star Trek inspired dioramas and props for both Star Trek action figures and Star Trek fans in person. Whether you're a cosplayer or a toy collector, there's plenty of stuff to check out from Triple Fiction Productions, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up today's guest. Computer, access interview file. So without further ado, let's begin the best of Star Trek The Next Generation stories from 2020 here on Trek Untold. Our first guest on this episode is Ursuline Bryant, who appeared as Captain Trila Scott in the Season 1 episode, Conspiracy. That episode is about a group of parasitic aliens trying to overthrow the Federation from within, and Ursuline played the youngest member of Starfleet to rise to the rank of Captain and initially be on the side of the Resistance who were aware of this threat but ultimately succumbing off-screen to the parasites and becoming one of them. Let's hear what Ursula remembers from this episode. And that led you down the path to become Captain Trilus Scott, who, according to the episode, was the uh, fastest-made captain in Starfleet history. Now, did they give you much information about her to work from? 
not at all. I, I know, and I had questions at the at that time, but it was up to me. It was my interpretation of who she was, and so that's that's my claim to fame that she was and the youngest. She came out no, not the youngest so much, but she came out of Starfleet Command ahead of Jean Luc Picard even. Something I've heard from uh, other actors who have done Star Trek is they were told to act a little bit flatter so that the aliens could be more expressive. Was that any any piece of direction you received? I'm not sure. I don't remember. Were you given any instructions on like ways that a Starfleet officer should act or anything like that? Yes. Uh, and, and, and I don't remember the exact uh, direction that Cliff gave me, but I interpreted as though I was in some form of the service, the armed forces. You know, that would be my equivalent of being a captain on the Starfleet, in Starfleet Command. And that was the closest thing that I could come to. All my uncles were in the, the branches of the services, the Marines, the Army, the Navy. And I would, you know, have been in their company all my life. So that's where I took my lead from and just tried to translate it to being in space. And again, that kind of calls back to you talking earlier about taking things from within you and then putting them out onto the screen. Yes, yes, yes. It's called that, you know, it's that experience that we have and you go back and you recall it and it's there for you. It serves you well to pay attention to all of your experiences and not negate anything because you never know where you're going to have to pull from. The most notable section of the episode, which is towards the end, when all the bad guys are basically revealing themselves as being taken over by an alien inside them. And all the characters are now eating worms. Do you remember having to eat worms in that episode? Because that was a thing you had to do. Oh, I remember it vividly. It was <laughs> delicious. And the reason I say that is because they appeared to be worms. They appeared to be grubs. But it was actually delicious pasta. Ah. <laughs> and it was, it was set in that little dish that I'm eating out of. Once again, the craftspeople behind the scenes, they, uh, they made this little dish with a motor underneath and it moved. So it made it look like the pasta in it or, or the grubs or the worms in it were moving around. And so it was very, very easy to, uh, to, to enjoy eating the worms because of the, it was pasta. I'm very glad to hear you weren't eating actual mealworms. That's a relief. <laughs> oh, my goodness. No, 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 no. <laughs> There's another part of this episode, too, where uh, once you get phasered, you fall down the floor and you got the parasite come out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. I'm not too interested in the parasite pi- uh, part, but what I am interested in was when you take that fall after you've been blasted by Picard and Riker, was that you actually taking the fall since you've got this now experience from being in all, all the marbles, or was that a stunt person? Yes. Yes, I did. And it wasn't a hard fall, either. After all the marbles, that was easy as pie. Yeah. They told me exactly what they wanted. They gave me the outline where I should fall. And, of course, took every precaution that I did not, you know, have any injury or, or hurt myself. But that was an easy fall for me. After the all, mar- all the marbles, prepared me well. Spencer Garrett is next on deck. He was in the episode The Drumhead from Season 4 as crewman Simon Tarses. Spencer is a well-traveled actor who has been in many, many, many things, and his role in Star Trek was actually one of his earliest. You may also recognize him from two episodes of Star Trek Voyager, but that'll be for a different episode. 
His character is thought to be half-human and half-Vulcan, although it turns out he's not actually all that he seems to be in this episode that looks at witch hunt trials and the abuse of power. Spencer has some very fond memories of this episode, as well as some things that happened offset. So let's have a listen. So typically on this show, we discuss some of the work that the people we are speaking with did before they get to Trek. But as you mentioned, uh, Trek was pretty early in your career and uh, it was pretty big for you. So I want to just jump right into your Star Trek Next Generation appearance. Sure. uh, Which was on season four episode, The Drumhead, where you got to play Crewman Tarsus. So uh, let's start at the beginning of that. Can you walk us through the audition process and how you ultimately got cast for that role? I remember walking into the casting offices at Paramount. Uh, As I said before, you know, in in the beginning of our conversation, Matthew, I I was really not, I I was really not a, a, a fan I wasn't not a fan. I just really wasn't that familiar with how how huge the fan base was and how huge the lore was. I didn't really grasp it, to be quite honest with you, until I went to my first convention about four or five years ago. That's when I really, really got a sense of how massive this is and what, it, what an extraordinary community is. But I, I went into my audition, uh, didn't really know. I, I remember asking around. Uh, friends of mine. I knew Brandon Braga, who was, I think, one of the EPs on the show at the time, uh, and Ken Biller and a couple of other people associated with the show. I knew some of the principals involved, and I remember saying, you know, what's what's a Romulan? How does a Romulan act? How does a Romulan act as opposed to a Vulcan? What is, and I sort of, you know, before the internet, so I had to kind of ask around and talk to friends who really knew the show and, and, and knew that world. And so I got a little sense of, uh, you know, what this guy was about. And, uh, and when I went into the audition, uh, Jonathan Frakes was in the room, I remember. Uh, and I'd watched several episodes just to get a little background and to do a little homework. And I walked in and Jonathan Frakes, who, I, who to this day is one of my dearest friends, uh, he directed the episode. And it might have been one of his very first things that he ever directed, if not his first. Um, but you have to check me on that. I can tell you, I think it was actually his third episode. Yeah, it was his third episode directing Star Trek, but it's still fairly early on in his directing career. Fairly early on, exactly. Uh, And he was terrific then. And in the audition, he said, you know, this is a a Shakespearean quality to this. Uh, And I remember really feeling very attracted to the writing because... Uh, it resonated with me because there was a there was a very strong, at least to my mind, there was a really strong metaphor in the story with what was going on with Crewman Tarsus and uh, and uh, the Gene Simmons character who was you know who had me up on trial. Uh, there was a sense to me that this was a metaphor about what was going on with the AIDS crisis in America at the time. Um, at least that's the way I interpreted it. Uh, you know, I I, I kind of. I kind of interpreted it, you know, as, you know, let's not demonize this man because, uh, because he has tainted blood. Uh, you know, there was a sort of an otherization about, about Simon. And so that's, that's how I approached it. It was, I mean, all, all of the, all of the best episodes of Star Trek, what, you know, whether it's, whether it's TNG or Voyager or whatever, the writing has a really elemental quality and it's really, uh, it really taps into the zeitgeist of what's going on in the world at the time. And so to me, that's what, that's, that's what the writing spoke to me. And Jonathan sort of coaxed me in the audition and, and uh, gave me some notes and adjustments. 
And, um, I mean, I think I was 23 or 24 at the time. I mean, I was very green and the scene in the audition was the scene with Patrick Stewart when I'm, when I'm, uh, I'm in his cabin and, uh, and I sort of break down and, um, I think there was one other scene before that, but that was sort of the, the main scene. And I found out, I walked out of the room feeling good about it. And I, I think I found out an hour later as I was, you know, I, I, I got home and my phone rang and my agent said, you know, you got the, you got the job and you're going to wardrobe tomorrow. Um, so I was, I was, I was thrilled, but I, again, I will say, um, and not, not to knock it at all, but really I, at the time I really thought, well, this is just any other show. I thought it was sort of like a silly, I, I, it, it seemed like a, seemed like a silly venture to me, uh, doing this show. Um, I didn't realize how, deeply it impacted people and how much people love the show. Uh, I just thought this is the, you know, this will be fun to do this little space show. And, uh, you know, I, I found out quite differently, you know, as the years went on. And then when I went on to do Voyager, uh, 10 years after that, uh, you know, how, how much people really, really love this show, but I took it very, very seriously. Uh, Sir Patrick was just wonderful with me. It really kind of took me under his wing on the, on the show during the course of the filming. And, uh, it just could not have been sweeter. And, you know, I tried to find my way around who this guy was. And, and I remember, I remember my first day on the set and I got my call sheet and I saw on the call sheet, it said Gene Simmons. And I thought, wow, I'm going to get to meet the guy from kiss. How cool is that? And I walked into the makeup trailer and it's Gene Simmons from Spartacus and guys and dolls and Hamlet. And I mean, you know, I, and I was just, gobsmacked when I saw her and she was just gorgeous and she had this beautiful 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 skin and this gorgeous hair just really really amazing to look at and of course I grew up watching her movies and she had a mouth like a sailor she smoked and and swore like a truck driver and I just thought man this is my kind of people so we we had a good time even though she was my adversary uh you know and my my uh uh, my, my, my potential executioner on the show. Uh, she was just lovely to me and, uh, had a, had a really good time. And then of course became friends with, with, uh, with Brent Spiner, LeVar Burton and, uh, and Jonathan and I became quite close and it's fun to go. I've been to a couple of these conventions now and, and, uh, and I, and I, you know, and, and a lot of those folks are there and it's always fun to run into them about the, the very, very first thing that I did after I wrapped the show which is kind of funny or not, but I, I wrapped that episode and, you know, in any actor's life, you think, well, I just did this terrific, huge guest star on, on a major show. My life is just going to skyrocket from here. And I didn't work for about a month. And I thought, okay, well, I, I probably have to get a job. I mean, I waited tables and tended bar in New York for seven, eight years. So I went to work at a restaurant in Silver Lake here in Los Angeles, which is sort of close to downtown and I picked a restaurant that was the most non-show busy, farthest out of town and still being in town restaurant that you could find in L.A. And my first night I was I worked as a maitre d' and my first night in the restaurant uh, in this restaurant that I picked that I thought nobody in show business will even set foot in. And the very first night that I worked in walks Jonathan Frakes, Brent Spiner, Whoopi Goldberg, LeVar. It was jazz night in the restaurant and they all played in a jazz band and they played, uh, I think 
Frakes played trumpet and uh, Brent plays plays uh, trombone. And they played in the restaurant and they came in there every week. So <laughs> and they walked in and they said, Crim and Tarsus. So that's fun. I can't get away from them. I, I still get recognized for Simon Tarsus more than any any other thing in my entire career. And I, and I, I adore that. Yeah, I imagine it must be very intimidating to have to do scenes, not only with Patrick Stewart, but where it's literally just you and Patrick Stewart in the room alone, as well as working with Bruce, as you mentioned, and Gene Simmons. Point being here, you have to work with some very intimidating characters and very intimidating actors. So what is it like on set yeah. when you're actually playing back and forth with these people in your roles? Well, you know, you're um, you're 23 years old and you and you, you you get cast on this amazing, iconic show. And so I think, even though I was nervous, I think, at the time, I probably wanted to act like I belonged there, um, you know. So I, I was I was trying not to betray my nerves, um, but I, I I wanted to kind of act like I fit in and like I deserved to be there with all these heavy hitters. So I mean, I, the, the vibe on the set was lighthearted and very collegial and fun, and Lavar was great and you know joking around with me, and uh, you know it was it was a really really great atmosphere on the set. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's, you know, you look at, you probably saw, I think a few weeks ago, uh, Marina Sirtis, uh, you know, it was her birthday and the entire cast, uh, got together on zoom to have a birthday party for her. I mean, that's, that's these guys, that's this group of actors, you know, they're a family and, and, uh, and that's, that's the family that welcomed me into the show when I was there. I mean, I was only there for a week, but, uh, but it was that, it was that kind of, you know, collegial, fun, you know, welcome to the family, welcome to our show. Uh, you know, you're our guest star for the week. And they treated me uh, like a peer, which was really lovely. Beaming into our episode now is a snippet from our chat with Juliana Donald, who played Tana in the season three episode, A Matter of Perspective. It's sort of a Star Trek murder mystery in the style of Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon. And it was a rough episode to film from all accounts. But Juliana still had a good time being part of it and working with the principal cast. So Juliana, let's jump now into 1990, and that is your Star Trek The Next Generation appearance. You were in the episode A Matter of Perspective. So can you tell us how you got cast for the role? Um, I had auditioned a lot of times for Star Trek. They um, had a thing where they would bring you in for auditions, and if you and you know if they liked you then they would bring you for another audition. I think I auditioned for them like five times and it was always, you know, you got to the audition and you were like, oh my God, how do I say this word? You know, you were always like, oh, you know, because they always had these strange words. Oh, that techno and, babble. Uh, and yeah, techno babble. And um, so that one I auditioned for and um, I got it. And it was, I can't remember who the who the um, director was of it, but um I worked with a lot of the cast. The main thing about that I remember is that I had no idea that in order to be that kind of an alien, that you have to sit in the makeup chair for four hours to get it on and sometimes four and a half hours to get it off because they can't just rip it off. It will rip your face off <laughs> and because um, it's glued on your face. And... Um, and it was a crazy week. I mean, we were working 20-hour days. I had got no sleep. I had what they call forced calls every day where they had to pay me extra money because they did not give me a 12-hour 
time turnaround from when they finished to when I needed to be there the next morning. And it was impossible to sleep because I had this huge head. So if I if I tried to lie down, you know, it, the head, like if I tried to lie down, I couldn't sleep because of the head being too big. So it wouldn't really fit on anything. And it was uh. just, it was crazy. So you got to work with a lot of very well-known character actors in this episode, uh, which included Mark Margolis, Gina Hecht, mm-hmm. and Craig Richard Nelson. And as you mentioned, you also got to work with some of the main cast, including Jonathan right. Frakes, Patrick Stewart, Marina Sirtis, right. LeVar Burton. Uh, what do you recall about working with all those people? Uh, Jonathan is like a super, he's like mayor of the town. <laughs> like he's one of those people that comes in and he's just like, hey, everybody, how are you doing? He's really, really, really friendly. Um, Patrick Stewart was nice. But he didn't have that like effusive thing that Jonathan has. Um, he was very nice, but very, he was very professional. And um, and um, Mark was really good. He was. I mean, we were in scenes, all these scenes together. So uh, he was also very professional. And um, and then Lavar Burton. I didn't really talk to him that much. Um, so, but everybody seemed to be really kind of you know, they understood the drill. They were just, nobody was complaining. Everybody, I mean, even though we were doing 20 hour days, no one was complaining. And, um, so that's what I remember about the cast. I just remember being kind of struck by how, um, kind of generous that Jonathan was. And he made a point of going up to everybody and shaking their hands and welcoming them and being just so nice and I just remember being struck by that because I had not seen that kind of behavior, um, you know, that kind of like like mayor of the town behavior on usually on any sets. People will be friendly. They'll be nice, but they're not like, hey, how are you? And what's your name? And thank you so much for coming here. And it's great to see you. And I'm really happy you're part of this. That kind of stuff. You don't see that that much. Yeah, I've heard stories about Jonathan and, and uh, Brent Spiner, among other actors, you know, some of the uh-huh. leads who would go to the commissary yeah. on lunchtime with the character actors like yourself and actually hang out with them, which is kind of, I imagine, very odd as well. Yeah, I, and the the thing is, too, is that you have to go to the Paramount. They shit, shot it at Paramount, and you had to go to the Paramount commissary. They didn't bring you food. And so you go to the Paramount commissary, and there's, like, all these people there with Star Trek heads. <laughs> and at first you think, oh, my God, are they going to be wa- looking at me? And they didn't. They could have cared less. Like, we see this every day, you know. <laughs> But that was pretty funny. Now, I've heard typically that the set of Star Trek is usually pretty happy, pretty upbeat. But again, this episode being such a difficult one to shoot, how was the morale? I think people were really super tired. I mean, I know I was. I could barely even stand up by the end because, you know, when you go, I think I got sick for two weeks after. Because when you go a week and you're working, you know, literally from three in the morning until midnight, and then you drive home and you get one hour of sleep and you have to go back and you can't sleep in the, in the, you know, in this horrible makeup, this crazy, you know, because they, you don't want to ruin your face. And um, so I think people were just a little bit burned out. No one was, I didn't find anyone was kind of snappy or anything, but I felt like people just looked fatigued. The character you played, because we haven't even mentioned her name yet, that was Tana. And uh, right. the script itself, you know, to me, it was very much like a Rashomon-style story, but with uh-huh. the Star Trek techno-babble kind of twist. Uh, when right. you first read it, what did you think about the story? Um, it's kind of like all Star Trek stories where you kind of have to go, okay, well, what's the universe? What am I doing? And what is the thing? And, you know, it was interesting. I, I thought it was great. I thought it was really interesting. But it was, you know... 
you got to wrap your head around it. It's kind of like when the, you get the story, it's not like, oh, you know, you're a mom that's upset because her kid got her kid ran out of her teacher of the kid hit the kid or something like that. It's not anything like that. It's like, OK, well, we're going to this planet and this is this thing and this is and there's all this like kind of millions of spokes going into the center of the wheel. So you just have to kind of figure out what you're doing. And, um, you know, uh, and like I said, Cliff was, I guess, because of all the technical issues and technical problems and green screens and everything else they were doing, that he was mainly concerned about all the technical stuff. And, you know, we were given direction, but not a lot, because it was mainly just about hitting the mark at the right time and getting this and making sure everybody could be seen and that kind of thing. So it was, um, you know, I mean, sometimes directors don't give you direction because they're happy with how you're doing it. And other times directors give you too much direction, you know, so. Yeah. So when the episode first aired, it was met with a pretty fair amount of criticism. And even since then, uh, some of the folks who were responsible for the episode called it one of the worst, if not the worst of the third uh, of the third season. And not because of the actors or anything that was done, just because of how the story worked out and all of that. Did you watch the episode when it first aired? And what did you think about it the first time you saw it? I did what I think I did watch it when it first aired. I thought it looked actually because I was on the set seeing all the, you know, you're acting and you see you have green screens here and all this. I kind of I liked it, but I was kind of looking at it probably from a different viewpoint that a Star Trek fan would look at it. Um, so I was just trying to see, does the story work? Does it, you know, how does it kind of how how are they doing all this like? replay stuff and all this all the things that they did so but it was a long time ago so to be a hundred percent honest i'm not a hundred percent sure exactly what i re- how i reacted when it mm. came out i mean having, i just watched it for the first time and i don't even know how long but i was doing research for this interview and you know like i thought the performances were great i thought the sets looked really nice as well i thought the ending was a little flat for me a little techno right. babbly but i thought it was a good episode so i was actually kind of shocked to hear it wasn't as well received as i thought it would have been yeah I, yeah, I didn't know that until now. So that's kind of interesting to hear. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, you know, yeah, it is interesting to hear that. I feel horrible. I'm like the person that just broke the news to you, but. Uh. <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. I, I'm not taking it personally. Trust me. I just think it's interesting because, you know, I don't, I've done other things, movies, whatever, that are just huge bombs. And I don't mind that. I mean, that's just, it's just, you never know how something's going to turn out. So, um, but uh you know, it was kind of hard to see how it was going to turn out, to be honest with you, when I was on the set, because it was just like these endless hours. And you're just like, when is this going to be over? And why do they have to reshoot this a hundred times? Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or a toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D-printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. 
All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, my name is Walker Brandt, and I was privileged to play the role of Cadet Hajar in the episode The First Duty, Star Trek The Next Generation. I was also a guest on Trek Untold a few months ago, and during my interview with Matt, I introduced my new book, Awaken, Discovering Yourself Through the Light of Your Innocence. The dedication in Awaken reads to the human spirit, the final frontier within. I'm a Trekkie. I'm a fan, and I have always believed that the final frontier is our unlimited imagination. And the reason I wrote my book is to support the reader, to always remember that when you combine your unlimited imagination with your innocence, you know, that playfulness as a child where you had no fear about the unknown. In fact, every single day you woke up into the unknown and you wanted to explore. That's been my journey. And that's how I believe that we change our reality for the better together because we're all creators and we're all explorers. So I ask you, what excites you? How will you expand and go where you've never been before? What steps will you take to embrace the unknown? So awaken, discovering yourself through the light of your innocence is there to support the reader, to share my journey, to let you know you're not alone, to let you know that if you've been through challenges and difficulties and times in your life where you felt like you just couldn't go on, I've been there with you and this book is there for you to encourage you to keep getting back up and moving forward into the adventure. So I hope you have a chance to read it. It's titled Awaken, Discovering Yourself Through the Light of Your Innocence, and it's available on Amazon. And it's the number one international bestseller. So I hope you get a chance to get on that journey with me. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at walkerbrandt.com or on my social media, Facebook, Instagram. Thanks so much. And I hope we get a chance to connect. We now return to Trek Untold. Everyone remembers Max Grudenchik as Rom from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. But did you know he appeared two times in TNG? And guess what? Each appearance he had, he was playing a Ferengi. Max first showed up in Captain's Holiday in Season 3 and again in Season 5 for The Perfect Mate. He also appeared in Star Trek Insurrection in a scene that was ultimately deleted from the final cut, which we do talk about in our full episode. Here's what he had to say about his time on TNG. Uh, In this episode, too, it's basically like kind of like a a Maltese Falcon meets Star Trek kind of story. I felt like your character was almost like the the Peter Lorre, if you will, in that episode. What a compliment. What a compliment. Great. Great uh, Peter Lorre. Austrian. Austrian. Austrian actor. Yes. Yes, sir. And uh, again, as we mentioned, he used to do this episode with Patrick Stewart, and it's basically primarily yourself, Patrick Stewart, uh, the actress who I can't remember whose name right now, uh, but who played Vash. Um, but I'm just curious about what it was like oh, to be Vash. around Patrick Stewart as well. You know, this is um, the captain oh. of, yeah, the captain of the Enterprise and Vash as well, another actress who came in because this episode and she continued to be on the series here and there. Um, but yeah, just oh, what she, you did about some D- she, she did some DS9 episodes. Was, yeah, she was um, actually on season one of D Space Nine in the episode with Q. Jennifer Jennifer Hetrick, I believe her name. Yes, yeah. That's, do you have any Do you have any memories of being on set with Patrick and Jennifer? When I met Patrick, Michael Westmore had to work on my uh, prosthetic uh, in the makeup lab, and that took a while. And uh, I, I I went to wardrobe and uh, had to be fitted for an outfit, a costume. 
And uh, that took a while. And uh, it was January in Los Angeles. And it was a beautiful day. The, the actors, LeVar and uh, Marina, I think, and Patrick, they were hanging out outside the stage because it was just a, such a warm, a beautiful day in January. And we're going from wardrobe, the person who was assisting me, we're going from wardrobe to the makeup lab. And right on the way, these guys were hanging out. And my, the, the person assisting me says, I think you should meet Patrick because you're going to be working a lot together. And she introduced me. And he shook my hand and he said, Max, you're going to be having a very rough week next week. <laughs> if there's anything I can do to make it easier for you, anything I can do to lighten your load, please have that request come through me. I seem to have some clout around here. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's how I, that was my introduction to Patrick Stewart. And uh, <laughs> yeah, he's been, he was nice that day. He was nice that shoot. And he's been nice to me uh, ever since. And uh, I only have nice things to say about that guy. He's, uh... Next on our best of TNG interviews from 2020, we have a part from our interview with Alex Datcher. Alex appeared in the Season 7 opener, Descent Part 2, as Ensign Tate. You may also recognize Alex from her time as the flight attendant from Passenger 57, who learned that you always bet on black. And she also very much enjoyed her time serving on board the Enterprise and looked back on that experience with great joy in her heart. Let's have a listen. So what do you remember about your first day on set for this shoot? First time seeing the bridge of the Enterprise and wearing the uniform. What was that like for you? And how jealous was your brother? <laughs> he was like, he was really jealous. Well, I walked on the set and I was like, oh my God. Wow. Look at that. This is, I'm actually on the set here. I was just in awe. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's Star Trek. You just think, oh my God, this is Star Trek. Um, so yeah, I was fascinated. And I didn't get to work with, um, uh, you know, with LeVar or, you know, some of the other thugs, but it, it was still great. I, I, I still just was, and I saw them walking around in uniform and, you know, at the craft table and at lunchtime. It, it, it was, I was starstruck <laughs> because it was like, I, I'm actually on the set of Star Trek and I actually get to say some lines. And then I would panic because I have to say some lines <laughs> <laughs> and pretend I know what I'm talking about. So, yeah, it was great. It was great. And it's unfortunate that you're on the bridge and you're not really interacting with Patrick Stewart or Jonathan Frakes or LeVar, as you mentioned, but you basically have the bridge to yourself along with a few other Lower Decks crewmen and Gates McFadden, who's basically taking command of the Enterprise while everybody's dealing with what's happening on uh, on the planet with Lore. But, yeah, what's it like working with Gates McFadden? How is she? Yes, and my brother actually had to, to give you a little bit of background drop on that, my brother actually had to walk me through some of my lines and said, this is what you're doing. And this is what she needs when she's saying she needs you to do this. And then he would give me an analogy. <laughs> it's like, just think of it like this. You're in a game and you're doing, I'm like, Oh my God, this is like crazy. Um, so it was really pretty fascinating. And he helped me understand exactly what she was trying to accomplish. I mean, I interacted with her, but she, we didn't really talk very much. It's not, it's not, it's not like we, you know, we did our scenes together, but there was no, once we would, we would break or pause or do a, a retake. She seemed like a very kind person, but I think, you know, 
she was into her role and getting her lines and things like that, just as I was. Um, and it could have been more so about me just trying to make sure I got my lines right. But she seemed like a very, very kind person. So how did you like wearing the uniform? You know, we've spoken to a lot of folks who are on Next Generation, and uh, we've heard mixed opinions on how comfortable they were. Some folks would say they'd ride up. Others were okay with it. Uh, how did the costume <laughs> feel for you? I liked it. It's a good fit. <laughs> I thought it felt good. I, I thought it was a good fit. I thought it felt good. I liked the way they did my hair, my makeup. Oh, yeah, your hair was amazing I, in that episode. I, I felt like it was pretty cute, right? Yeah. I thought I, I, thought I could do this. If they would just bring me back again, I could do this. <laughs> so no, I didn't have any problems with it. So you also got to do some space acting as well, which is when the ship gets hit by things, you have to jitter around as if you've just been blasted for real. Uh, I'm just curious what kind of instruction they give you for doing that type of thing. And I remember that was trying. I have to tell you, I was like, what? Am I doing this right? I got to shake myself. <laughs> it, it was, God, if I can recall, it was like, you're going to get hit. I don't know if someone would clap their hands or make a noise or whatever they would do. And you would have to, you know, like do a jolt, like you're, you're shaking. And then it's shaking as I'm trying to type at the same time. And I'm like, okay, does this look real? But I'm, <laughs> I don't know if this is right. It was just different. It was just different. You know, I just tried to keep up with everybody else. And as long as the director wasn't coming over and saying, you're not doing it right, then I felt I was okay. <laughs> yeah, this episode was directed by Alexander Singer, who I think he got some really great-looking shots on the bridge in particular. Uh, do you recall anything about working with him, besides the space acting? I do not. I do not. And that's probably a good thing, which means, you know, when directors let you do your thing and they speak to you very little, it's usually a good sign. <laughs> it means you're, you're doing a good job. When they have to give you lots of direction, that's me go, okay. I'm maybe not quite getting what they wanted. But that's, I think, what directors want. They want you to come in and just do whatever you did in the audition, which is become that character, take it over, so I don't have to give you too much besides stage direction. So what I kind of liked about this episode in particular with your story was that how basically the majority of the crew is off ship and Beverly Crusher is in command and brought in a lot of the lower decks folks like yourself, like Lieutenant Barnaby, who was played by James Horan. He was the lieutenant who sat next to you and kind of you, know, you guys had a little bit of a spat during the episode. Uh, and also Tracy Lecoco was there, another former guest of the show. Uh, so, you know, getting to work with all those folks, I mean, was there a kind of camaraderie on set for all you guys together? Uh, not really. I recall that the set was, it wasn't, I wouldn't say tense, but it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, relaxed. It wasn't Hannah the Hun. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, that type of character in that setting where people could just laugh and be jovial. I mean, you had some serious stuff happening, and I think people were expected to hit their mark, do their thing, because it was a well-oiled machine. Mm, yeah. um, and so they, you know, it was a timer. You had to do your thing. It wasn't one of those, you know, everybody chill, relax, we're going to have. That's my recollection of it. But it, it wasn't like it was intense either. It was just more, let's get the work done. Eric Avari is an actor whose face you've seen time and time again, although his name might not be familiar to you. But if you just do a quick Google search, I guarantee you'll recognize him immediately. Eric had three appearances in the Star Trek franchise, and the first came in the episode Reunification Part 1, where he played a Klingon named Bijik, who helps Picard procure transport to the Romulan homeworld. 
Sadly for Eric, his role in the episode was about as long as this paragraph I'm saying to you right now. But hey, there's a story for everything in Star Trek, and even a cameo as quick as his. So Eric, let us now come to your first ever Star Trek appearance, and that was in the Next Generation 2-parter. You were in the first part of this one, and that's Unification from Season 5. And you played Bajik, who was a Klingon who the Enterprise contacts for some help to get across the neutral zone. Yeah. So can you tell us uh, how you got cast for this role? Uh, were you aware that you were going to be playing a Klingon? When I came to Hollywood, I thought I could see myself fitting into that, you know, the, the sci-fi genre. Heavy makeup. I know that they, they typically like uh, classically trained actors, you know, so I felt like that's going to be my foot in the door. Um, and uh, I didn't see myself playing, you know, back then there, there was no Indian community per se, other than perhaps you're a Seven Eleven guy, you know, and they were actually from Bangladesh, but <laughs> that's besides the point. Um, I did see myself going in and, and uh, Jenny Lowry, the casting director, took a shine to me and she would call me in for multiple shows and different different roles and uh, and I, I kept running into issue after issue. One was uh, well, there was one I went out for uh, that required the full contact lens thing and uh, it was for uh, an 18 episode uh, role and I just could not get, and I told them up front, I said look I don't wear contact. I am squeamish about my eyes, so I'm really not, you know, I've got to let you know up front that I, I'm, I may not be able to do this. And so I'm going ahead and read, anyway. And I, I read, and said, and they said, go down. Air makeup is waiting for you, and, and they'll try to put it in. Let's see how that goes. And said, oh, they're very gentle. And they were. They were very gentle, but I was just way too squeamish. And that the lens was so, you know, the, the full lens, hard lenses. And even when, when I finally did get it in, one, I basically couldn't even open my eye without, without just screaming tears. And, you know, uh, so I gave it my all, but I, I couldn't do it. Um, so then they finally called me back for this, and I, and I got it, and I was thrilled because I was finally going to meet the, this cast and all this stuff, you know, and I get there, uh, um, was in the makeup chair for three and a half hours mm. and, uh, and they said, uh, okay, they're ready for you on set. And I was like, great. Oh, and the one thing was they didn't have boots my size, but apparently I was the shortest cling on they'd ever hired. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, <laughs> like size 13. And they said, well, no one's going to see it anyway, but we'll, we'll put them on just so you have the tops at least, you know, that they might see the tops. And I clumped in there and uh, there and I and they said, okay, they're all at breakfast and getting makeup, so uh, we'll just do it with the uh, first AD. <laughs> Read. <laughs> I was like, you mean I'm not going to meet anyone? Ah. <laughs> Actually, on the set, I think we did two takes, and they were like, great, that was wonderful. Enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs> it took longer to take my makeup off than to do it. See, I would have left the makeup on yeah. just to walk around like that. Yeah, 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 right. So you basically spent like three and a half hours doing makeup for essentially a 10-minute scene. 
That's right. That's wow. right. That's the Star Trek experience, right? That was my first Star Trek experience, yes. One of our most popular guests of the year was Alicia Naff, who you may recall as Ensign Sonia Gomez from two episodes of the second season, Q Who and The Samaritan Snare. Her character was meant to have some big things happen to her, but ultimately, as Dathan would say, Shaka when the walls fell. She spent a lot of time on screen with LeVar Burton, as well as a pretty unforgettable moment with Patrick Stewart. Let's hear about Alicia's time in uniform and what she thinks stopped her character from coming back. All right, so Alicia, let's jump into Star Trek The Next Generation uh, because you came aboard to play Ensign Sonia Gomez. Uh, your first appearance was in Q Who. So let's just kick things off first by how did you get the role of Ensign Gomez? Oh my gosh, okay. Well, I was um, doing a play. I had a lead in a play at the time over at the Zephyr Theater and um, we were already uh, I, we were already in the run. When I'm doing a play, when you when anyone is doing a play, I would imagine if there's any you know actors out there, your chops, your your acting chops, your fluids are really going, and you don't have a lot of stage fright. It's just you you're in the zone of of what the craft of acting is. So I was I went over it was just, it was a Paramount again. Yeah, it was a Paramount, and um, there's you know it was a long casting call. Um, there was Tons of girls in the waiting room. Um, her, the character was Jewish at first. They called her Ensign Sonia Sussman. So they were, I don't know, for some reason, uh, she was Jewish. Uh, so, I, you know, there's a whole bunch of girls who looked exactly like me. And I was the very last one to audition. And I remember in one of my acting classes, uh, the Meisner method, it was I was studying at the time. It was like, the longer they make me wait, the better I'm going to be. So I just kept saying that in my head, because usually you just get nervous and don't know when you're going to get called. I was the very, very last one. And I walked in there and I, I don't know, I just was so focused and I went for it. And it was just for the casting director, but she was so well known at the time. I wish I remember her name. Very famous casting director that you booked right off of her recommendation. Um, she, she found Niles from, um, the, the character of Niles and Frasier from the same situation. She just had this eye for finding talent. And so producers didn't have to come in and see you. So she just suggested me and boom. Now here's the deal for those Trekkies. I'll tell you some, some inside info. So, you know, the canon, I mean, it's like the Bible, um, there really is an Ensign Sonia, and maybe her name is Gomez. I'm not 100% sure. But her it's written that she becomes Jordy's love interest, that Jordy falls in love with this Ensign so much that he's willing to do this life-changing surgery and possibly, you know, fatal surgery to remove his glasses so he can see because he falls in love with me so much. Problem was, um, it was at the very end of the season. We were the, shooting the last two episodes is when they brought me in. The two episodes of uh, my character, they made her kind of a comic relief. Uh, or maybe I just evolved it into being that because I, I tend to, you know, have a funny bone in my nature. But it was written that light, like that. I was kind of like a bumbling, young, wide-eyed 
you know, star struck kind of, and I, you know, just looked up to Jordy as a mentor. And so what happened is over hiatus, you know, the producers decided not to bring me back as a regular role because they thought Jordy would never fall in love with somebody like me. And they were right. I mean, you know, the way they shot it, the way they edited it, the way they wrote it, when I look at it, Jordy's not going to fall in love with someone who seemed so young and so wide eyed and so goofy, you know, kind of just not really sophisticated enough for him to want to do a fatal surgery to remove these glass, you know, to give him sight. So it turned out that they never found, they never did evolve any character like that. He played the rest of, from what I recall, am I right, Matthew? He never took the, he was always blind, right? Oh, the visor kind of sort of came off in the movies. Um, so oh, that was it right. briefly. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, yeah, for the rest of the actual TV series, the visor was always on. Yeah. Yeah. And what was really fun is working with LeVar Burton. Oh my gosh. Um, they were shooting a mission impossible at the time. So Tom Cruise had security everywhere and, you know, lots of sound stages were blocked off and I'm like, what's going on? And I was like, Oh, it's Tom Cruise. But I walked to LeVar uh, Burton's, um, wasn't really a trailer. It was more of like a suite that was on the, you know, like an apartment because he shot there so much. And it was done like this new age Bodhi tree spiritual. It had incense burning and candles and drapes. And we sat on pillows across from each other and ran lines. And I was like, wow, this guy is so spiritual. And, and he was the real deal. You know, we rehearsed with, you know, looking at each other and he's so connecting. He's such a good actor. My God, you know, um, I'm looking into his eyes and they're watery and so loving. And then I forgot when we started to shoot that he put that on and all of that connection that actors love to have was gone. Um, you know, I worked with it anyway, but it was kind of, Oh yeah, he's going to be like that. And the other thing is the guy who um, is covered in gold Data. Data. Okay. The Android data. Yeah. Brent Spiner. Yeah. First of all, all of those actors, by the way, are so sweet. I mean, so sweet. They, you know, said, what's your name? And they got to know me and there was no like star tripping. Nobody had a star trip thing going on. I mean, except maybe Captain Picard, but that was because he was, that was his character, you know, but offset, he was really, really nice. Oh, I'll tell you another Star Trek secret. (laughs) Well, you guys might, you know, already know this. So, you know how all the men look like they're built, like they've, you know, none of them have have physiques whatsoever. They've all got scrawny shoulders or pot bellies or they're thin or they're fat. That's built into their costume. So it looks like, you know, I, I when I when I met uh, Patrick Stewart, he, you know, he, he, he just looks like a thin British guy. You know, and then you, he's got the outfit on. It looks like, you know, he works out every day. And all of the characters are like that. In real life, they, you know, just are normal physical human beings. But the outfits. And the other thing is they're hyper crazy about your hair and your outfit. Each actor has two people studying them and walking around with them at all times. One is to make sure there's not one wrinkle. They're pulling things down and tucking things in and making things look smooth. It has to look perfect. And, oh, here's something that happened. Between episode one and two, oh, they did reshoots on episode two. But they had wrapped the season, and I called the producer's room. I said, look, I'm thinking of cutting my hair, and they were fine. But two weeks later, they needed me to come back for a reshoot. I had cut my hair. 
and they went ballistic for some reason. You know, people, you know, sets the people are under a lot of stress. So there's a lot of high strung emotions and they were extremely upset that I cut my hair. So very quickly, um, Michael Westmore, who's a very, very famous uh, makeup artist, and he did Clown of the Cave Baron. He comes from that Westmore family. He got hair extensions and they made sure that I matched. But prior to that, one day we were shooting um, episode before episode two. um, It was just about to start episode two. They put me in one of those golf carts and I'm driven to the producers and writers room. And I'm like, they didn't tell me why I didn't know what was going on. I could tell that it wasn't good. And I was like, I was really scared. (laughs) Just like, am I going to get fired? I mean, what's going on? You know, this was, again, I was just star eyed. I was thinking this could be my big break, blah, 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 blah. So I go into this, you know, room and it's one of those big conference tables. And honestly, there's maybe 16 to 20 people in there. And they had some big TV sets and monitors and they ran some of the daily, some of the footage from the first episode and they would freeze frame on it. And they would go, you see that? You see that? You see that? You know what they were pointing at? Flyaways in my hair. And I had a shag haircut at the time, I didn't have Star Trek hair. And what they came to show me, I don't know why they were showing me. I don't know why I was involved. <laughs> but they brought in the talent and not the, you know, hairdressing team. But maybe the hairdressing team was in there. I don't remember. I was just so afraid and scared. But basically, it had nothing to do with my acting. You know, it had all to do. And my hair looks pretty much the same as it did then. Just lots and lots of layers. But I don't think Alicia Neff has ever had a bad hair day in anything I've seen her in. Oh, you're sweet. <laughs> but oh my God, you know, so they had to make it helmet hairish, and someone was following me all the time, moving my hair and straightening my hair. And, you know, it was very, very rigid, making sure the thing is here and that's here. Oh, another thing is the very first day, the very first scene, the very first moment, I'm just in engineering and what it is, it's, it's fake really. You have to pretend to push buttons and they light up and stuff, but it's just really a wall of nothing. So I'm like, I'm, you know, moving around and shoot and touching stuff and they, they stop everything. And there's a, there's a conversation. They they, Star Trek was intense on the set, even though the actors were nice, but it was a lot of drama. uh, And they come to me and they usher me away to the wardrobe uh, wardrobe area. And I knew it, it wasn't me, that I didn't do something wrong. I mean, you're always thinking you're screwing up. I was an A cup at the time. So they made me a B cup. And then they went, took me out there. And then they made me a C cup. And they took me out there to look uh, on camera. And then they made me a D cup. My boobs, you can't really see it. My boobs were like out here. You couldn't really see in the outfit because it smashed it down. But they made me this gigantic D cup just so it would read that I had boobs in the outfit. (laughs) So I found that pretty fascinating. There was more direction and time by far given to hair, makeup and wardrobe than any direction for acting or no one ever given me acting direction at all. It was just, thank you. That was great. Cut next. It's pretty hysterical. I did want to ask you a little bit more about uh, Patrick Stewart also, because your scene, your first scene with him is you're spilling hot cocoa all over him. 
And I imagine just in the first place, being in a room with Patrick Stewart is intimidating. Having to now spill hot cocoa on him is probably even more frightening for a young actor. Uh, what can you tell us about doing that scene with Patrick Stewart? And again, just you got to spill stuff on him. That's crazy. That sounds well, like a horrible thing to do. It sounds like a nightmare to me personally in real life. Right. There was only one rehearsal in which I didn't spill anything. And then they, they could only do two takes. So they had two cameras rolling on each two takes because they only had two changes of outfit from Patrick. Or maybe that's all Patrick wanted to do. Um, so I had to nail it. So which helped because I had to be nervous in the scene. You know, my captain, your captain, my ship, your ship. I had to be kind of, you know, bumbling like that. So um, we we just did it twice. Um, and he didn't want to talk to me. He, he didn't want to be friends with me. He wanted to keep that kind of intimidating aspect so that the, the roles would look right when we shot it. He didn't even want to be my friend off camera. And then, you know, be intimidating on camera. So it was very fun. It was, it was really great. After that, years later, I saw him in a play and I went backstage afterwards. And he was just the sweetest guy. He was just completely not that. He has such a sense of humor about himself. I wish he'd host Saturday Night Live because he's hysterical. So it was really fun working with him. So I heard a story and maybe you could help let us know if this is true or not. Now we're going to jump into Total Recall a little bit. But I heard that uh, it was your appearance on Total Recall that also may have actually hindered your continuing in Star Trek Next Generation. Is there any truth to that? Oh, no, because they were that was a couple of years later, from what I recall. I mean, maybe that's true. I mean, honestly, I've just heard rumors. So, yeah, I want to get to the bottom of that. But I know there's other things going on, obviously, you mentioned already with uh, with the character. So, you know, I don't I don't know. I'm not privy to that. I Honestly, I'm not privy to that. I was also told that that um, my role didn't continue on because my agents didn't accept a deal and they never told me about it. I was told that a couple of times that, that I, I was offered, um, which all of that is just heartbreaking, you know? I mean, for someone who was young like I was and who was really dedicated to the craft of acting and just loved it and worked very, very, very hard and would have done anything they asked me to do to, to find out something like, you know, it was my agents who didn't accept a deal that I didn't even know about you know, maybe they would were offering SAG minimum. I would have taken it. Are you kidding? But that I, I still don't have any evidence. The thing is, Star Trek, those episodes were shot in 85 or 86. And Total Recall was 87, 88. So I don't know uh, if they influenced each other. And finally, let's revisit our chat with another great Ferengi, Armin Shimmerman who everybody knows best as Quark from Deep Space Nine. But of course, this is a TNG episode, and much like his Ferengi brother, whom we spoke with earlier, Armin also got a start on Star Trek TNG. But not only was that his first entry into the franchise, Armin was in fact among the first group of actors to wear the Ferengi makeup, since he appeared in that first season episode, The Last Outpost. It's a pretty infamous episode for a lot of reasons, and unlike a lot of the stories from our other guests today, Armin's memories were a bit less happy about that particular appearance. So let's hear a little bit about his first time being a Ferengi, as well as another role he had in that first season that a lot of people don't even know about. And yeah, since you mentioned you've been a Ferengi for quite some time before, I actually do want to discuss a little bit about your first appearances, because you were essentially among the first group of actors to portray the Ferengi, and they've seen quite a change. So uh, really to kick things off, I'd like to ask what it was like for you to be in the makeup chair for the very first time having to put on the Ferengi makeup? Well, the first time took about four to five hours. Uh, I had the head of the department, uh, Michael Westmore, putting the makeup on. 
it was claustrophobic slightly, slightly, because they have to put the the um, the mask up. The um, it's a mask, but it's not the mask we're thinking of. They have to put a plaster Paris um, mask over you to to create the form from which the the rubber later will be molded on. Michael was uh, terrifically uh, conciliatory and nice and patient. And when he sealed up all my breathing passages, except for the two straws in my nose, he held my hand for 20 minutes uh, while I endured that. that. That wasn't so bad because it turns out that claustrophobia is not one of my problems. And um, though I was aware that I couldn't really breathe as well as I normally could, uh, Michael was there who assured me always that, that if anything got really bad, if I felt really panicky, that he would bust the mold and, and let me out. So, and he never left my side. Uh, he was terrific that way. Now, at that time, and I think I'm correct about this, uh, there were seven pieces to this Ferengi makeup. And actually, there should have been an eighth piece, and we'll get into that in a second. Um, and uh, so I had to endure uh, the seven pieces being put on. And that's what took four to five hours uh, originally. Certainly, in Deep Space Nine, we got it down to two hours, but um, they also had eliminated or had cut it down to two pieces. Now, what about that eighth piece? Okay. Those of you who are Star Trek fans, the next time you see Quark, you'll notice that he doesn't have a flange in the back of his head. Why do the other Ferengi have flanges and Quark doesn't? And here's the answer to that. In that first makeup uh, appliance session, uh, we put everything on the seven pieces, got it all done. Uh, they sent me back to my trailer and uh, lo and behold, the makeup department and the costume department hadn't communicated enough to realize that my, that my collar of my shirt didn't extend to where the makeup ended in the back of my head. So my hair and my neck was showing. And of course, neither one of those was orange. And, um, and so they rushed me back to Michael Westmore to the makeup head. And uh, he got out a, a, one of those pieces of plastic that you now see on many of the Ferengi and the stapler gun. And he just <laughs> stapled that to the back of my head. And, um, and that was the way to cover it up. When I became Quark, Michael said to me, you know, we never did make the back of that head for you guys. So let's create a piece, uh, which was part and parcel of the helmet of the entire piece. Um, so it extended down below the collar of my, my wardrobe. And that first time that you were the Frankie too, I wanted to ask about the portrayal of the characters because, you know, as we've seen in Deep Space Nine, when we get to Quark, Quark is a savvy businessman. First episode, the Frankie are basically jumping around like spider monkeys. It's very animated, very physical role also. So again, here you are wearing all of this makeup and now you've got to jump around a soundstage. Uh, I mean, that's, that just sounds like a very intense day. I don't got to jump around. I stupidly, foolishly, uh, uh, unwisely, and uncreatively jumped around. Those were my stupid, stupid, stupid choices. And my agenda playing Quark was to try to eradicate the memory of that performance on Last Outpost that so denigrated the species. 
that Ferengi were meant to be the next Klingons. They were never meant to be comic. They were always meant to be threats. I failed miserably, as my friend would say. Um, and, and so I am so embarrassed. To the world, I apologize for that performance. It sucked. Um, and, and Quark was my attempt to make up for the bad doing that I had done. As weird as it was seeing the Frankie in the last outpost, I still enjoyed watching them and seeing how different they were. And it made it more interesting when we saw them again later on, just how they've already begun to change since meeting the well, Federation. I had set the bar so low, any improvement would be an improvement. Well, it was still wonderful to see. And uh, there is one other role. You know, you did play the Frankie a few other times on Next Gen, but the one other role I do want to ask you about in the time we have today is when you appeared again in the episode Haven and you were Loxana Troy's magical talking luggage. Haven came first. Haven came first, really. He shot Haven first. Yeah. Haven came first. I would not have been a Ferengi had I not been in Haven. I would not be sitting here in front of you today had I not accepted that tiny little role on Next Generation as the box in Haven. One flows to the next, to the next, to the next, to eventually uh, being Quark and sitting here. Yeah, that's so interesting because to me, especially, you know, like that whole talking luggage thing, it was like something out of a, out of a Jean Cocteau film. Uh, it just seems so bizarre even to have in Star Trek to have that thing in there. I- I'm curious, what is an audition like to get a role as a piece of talking luggage? I don't remember the audition. I do remember. I- I've told you already I was a huge fan and uh, that's part of the story. And I will get to that in a second. Uh, so I was delighted to be uh, there. I don't remember the audition. I do remember the the uh, makeup process and being attached to the box, I think that took a good five hours as well. And uh, the actual shooting process couldn't have lasted longer than 15 minutes. Uh, I just, uh, they put me um, in the, uh, in the beaming chamber and uh, they took out the bottom and I, I got in and then we put it so that just my chest uh, was showing. And, and, uh, uh, and we did it in 15 minutes. Um, uh, I will tell you a story if you don't mind. I'm sure you want to hear stories. So this one I've tell, told a couple of times, but I'll repeat it. So at the time that I did Haven, which was the first of the Star Trek shows that I did, episodes that I did, I was recurring on another science fiction show called Beauty and the Beast. And uh, I had auditioned for Star Trek, was ecstatic that they had cast me uh, in Star Trek, because as I said, I was a huge fan. And I got some bad news from my agent a couple of days before we shot the Haven episode. And they said, it turns out that that Beauty and the Beast needs you the same day that you need to shoot Haven. And he said, so of course you have to give up the Star Trek, which was a very small part, uh, to play the recurring part that I had on Beauty and the Beast. However, I was a huge Star Trek fan, and, and I was not happy about losing those couple lines on Next Generation. I had a huge fight with my agent, a huge fight with my agent. But because I'm the client, I eventually won that fight. And we had to tell Beauty and the Beast that uh, I was not going to appear that day, which they took in stride. I did Haven. And then I believe it was two or three weeks after shooting Haven, they called me in for that first Ferengi episode, Last Outpost. And I truly believe the reason I got cast, two reasons. One was my height. Uh, I was the right height for a Ferengi. 
But two, I had just worked for them and they liked what I did on Haven. And so uh, they gave me the part of the, one of the first four Ferengi on Last Outpost. But, but if I had listened to my agent, a very good agent and a very smart agent, I would, again, not be sitting here in front of you today. So there you have it. That's our best of TNG interviews for 2020 here on Trek Untold. If you're a new listener to the show and you enjoyed what you heard, I hope you'll check out the full episodes from some of these guests to hear more stories from not just other Star Trek things they were in, but more films and television shows, as well as updates on what these actors are doing today. And don't forget to stick around next week when we come back with another highlight episode, this time spotlighting our favorite stories from Star Trek Deep Space Nine that we've had here in 2020. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. Whether you're listening to this show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or any audio platforms, or our YouTube channel, youtube.com Nerd News Today, please make sure you subscribe to whatever format you're listening to so you can ensure you get the new episodes of this show as soon as they come out. And that's every Thursday on audio platforms and every Sunday on YouTube for the video version. Please don't forget to check out our Teespring store to check out some of the merch we have for this show at teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. You can also support this podcast by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold to become a Patreon. We've got a few different tiers that offer some different benefits that you might enjoy, so please take a look if you can. If you want to get updates on who's going to be on the newest episode of the shows, please follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Trek Untold. That's one word, no spaces, Trek Untold. But one of the biggest things you can do to help out this show is to interact with us. Whether that's leaving a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast, or leaving a comment or giving it a thumbs up on YouTube. It costs you nothing but time and helps out this show tremendously to get more attention and get more listeners to help this podcast continue to grow and expand. So until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold. And remember, fortune favors the bold.